At this year's Oscars, Oppenheimer took home the award for Best Picture, Emma Stone and Robert Downey Jr. also picked up wins, and Ryan Gosling brought the Kennergy. For a recap of all the highlights, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. From NPR News, this is Invisibilia. I'm Elise Spiegel. And I'm Lulu Miller. One day last summer, because we wanted to see something truly magical... Lulu and I found ourselves standing in front of a huge table covered in lasers and mirrors while a very nervous physicist hovered nearby. I try not to bump anything here. (laughs) The nervous physicist, and our guide for the day, was a grad student from the University of Maryland named David Huckle. It doesn't look like these things do anything, but I promise you all of the pieces on this table are important. (laughs) And David had brought us to the table because he wanted to use the many lasers and mirrors to try to perform something called quantum entanglement. Yeah. He was going to try to take two separate atoms and using his laser, turn them into the same thing. At the simplest level, entanglement is just the idea that Two things that are separated in space can still be the same thing. That's Jeff Brumfield, the physics guy at NPR, who we brought along to help us try to make sense of what we were about to see. You can have an object that exists in two different spaces and still the same object. I mean, that's wild. That's totally weird, right? (laughs) Yes. Uh, So if you look at that screen right there. So, David directed our attention to the first atom, which sat in a metal box on one side of the table. You could actually see it on a screen right above the box. It looked like a little pulsing green dot. So you're looking at it right now. And then he pointed us to the other atom, four feet away across the table in an identical metal box. We typically refer to the the atoms as east and west because, well, the cardinal directions. (laughs) Two separate physical things... In two different places, they pulsed and spun at their own rate. They were completely different individuals, so to speak. But then David pressed a button. One, two, three, go. And lasers shoot out of this contraption on the table. And those lasers hit the atoms and make them spin faster until they each emit a photon, which David and his team can make crash into each other in a way that then connects and entangles the atoms that those photons have left behind them. Now, to know whether it has actually worked, David has rigged up a device that makes an audible click any time entanglement is actually successful. So we wait. And then... So there's entanglement going on right now between these two chambers. (laughs) Those two atoms, east and west, are now one. Even though they still sit four feet across from each other on a table. It's amazing. You can wave your hand in the middle of it. It doesn't affect it. Wow. If David and his colleagues did something to change one of the atoms in its little box, they could be 100% certain that the other atom, still in its little box, would also change. It's almost like destiny. Now, the U.S. government is actually funding this work in the hopes of making a computer network, a quantum computer network that could ensure with absolute certainty that information that traveled between two parties was not breached. 
And so far, scientists have been able to get entanglement to occur at a distance of just over 88 miles. Though theoretically, you could fly one atom to the moon, and still, if you affected it in some way, the other atom back on Earth would be affected instantaneously in the same way. I mean, that's wild. That's totally bizarre. The guys who do these, this research don't understand it. They tell me they don't understand it. It's just there. It's, you know, it's math and it works. And you don't even need lasers to get it to work. Quantum entanglement, the scientists told us, probably happens all the time in the natural world. Like there could be one particle of you right now entangled with a person that you just passed on the street. The idea that two objects that are physically separated, I mean really physically separated over miles or, you know, eons or whatever, time, space, what have you, are still the same thing is something so foreign. I think it just makes me cautious, I guess, about what I think is possible. What, what, the, what I think I understand about the way the world works, because... There's this very common thing at a very small level that doesn't correspond to anything we understand about the universe. From NPR News, this is Invisibilia. I'm Lulu Miller. And I'm Lee Spiegel. We are a show about the invisible forces that shape human behavior. And today we are looking at entanglements that we cannot see. Entanglements that may surprise you. That is the theme of this show. Stay with us. Okay, so speaking of breaking all known rules of the universe, turns out that entanglements like this don't just stop at atoms. They can happen in a way with people. Yeah. Oh, maybe it's on the other side? Which is why we ended up late and lost in a rental car searching for an address. Six three. Ooh, here we are. Hi. Hi. I we are circling. We were going to visit a woman named Amanda. Oh, there you are. Very petite and pretty, dressed all in black with long dark hair. Hi, nice to meet you. We're keeping her identity private because she has a very unusual condition. Amanda says she physically feels everything the people around her physically feel. You know, when I tell people that, I'd sound completely insane, you know, like an idiot. But Amanda says that these ghost feelings, they have always been there ever since she was small. Yeah, I think I was about three at a Christmas party or something. They had this boy, he was older than me, and um, people were hugging him like they hadn't seen him in a while they knew the family and stuff like that and I remember feeling like I was being hugged watching him so someone at the party would come up and hug the boy and little Amanda a couple feet away would feel it 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 was like a warm rush up the spine and just constricted uh, the shoulder area here like this And I followed him around, like, the whole entire evening because it was just so nice. He'd get a hug. She'd get a little hug. A warm rush. He'd get a hug. 
she'd get a little hug. And, I mean, that was the first time I, I can remember it clearly. And I thought everybody felt that. Basically, whenever Amanda sees someone, she physically experiences some version of what they physically experience. So when, as we were talking, I scratched my ear, Amanda felt a, a little, little tickle. tickle right here. <laughs> or when I gave myself a little slap, just a test, Dude. Amanda felt it too. It's totally fine. <laughs> and in Amanda's home, you can actually see strange physical traces of living with this condition. For instance, there's no real dining table in her house because Amanda can't eat around other people. Gosh, um, it feels like they're shoving food in my mouth and I'm trying to eat and they're shoving their forks in my mouth and it's like this thing piled on top of itself and it's terrible. So I'll have to go sit on the couch and eat my food. That's her husband. So we really don't eat together as a result of that. Also, when we visited, all the blinds in her home were drawn. Though it was a bright, sunny day outside, Memorial Day, actually, you would never know it. Amanda prefers things subdued because the outside world can be overstimulating and unpredictable. For instance, she told us about this one day when she went to the grocery store and saw a kid playing in a grocery cart. Standing up in the cart, I think. And he fell backwards and hit his head just smack. And I went to run, and all of a sudden my eyes went blurry, and I was down on my knees on the thing before I could get to this kid. And I'm just like, this child, uh, he needs help. And um, my head hurt so bad that I basically you know, was like crawling to try to get to the kid. Like, it was bad. I think there might maybe a lot of people hear this sort of thing and think it's basically bullshit. So that's her husband again. But, I mean, I see it, and there's something to this. Certainly. Yeah, no, totally. Elise, were you not just thinking it was about time for a British scientist? I was yearning for the authority of a British <laughs> person right now. <laughs> well, here we've got one. This one's name is Michael Bannessy. Mm -hmm. And he is a neuroscientist at Goldsmiths University of London. Run the Brain Stimulation Laboratory. And what Banasi's team saw when they looked at people like Amanda is that when they watch somebody else get touched, the touch centers of their brain go wild. They hyperactivate that system. It's overexcitable. It's much more excitable than when you or I activate the system. Because, see, it turns out this is something we all do, but in a much smaller way. Like, when you or I watch somebody get hugged, or slapped, say, we all get a tiny burst of activity in the corresponding area of our brain. These are called our mirror systems, or mirror neurons. So in this sense, we do kind of automatically slip into the shoes of other people, even if we're not consciously aware of that. But usually that activity is very quiet. What was different about the people like Amanda, Banasi and his team put into brain scanners was that those same mirror systems were dialed way up. Um, so what they're doing is potentially activating the system past a threshold um, to the extent that it can actually reach the level of a conscious experience. In other words, physically, they do feel 
what other people feel. These guys are literally having a physical sensation or, or tactile response um, when observing these experiences in other people. It was like a warm rush up the spine. It was just so nice. So if this is still all sounding a little sci-fi, remember that touch, all touch, even the touch you feel like, ow! (laughs) Sorry, at least a little pinch down on your skin. That feeling is created by your brain. You You feel it down on your skin, but it is manufactured up in your brain. And so in the case of people like Amanda, their brain is manufacturing that same sensation. Ow! Dude! Even when it's not them being touched. When I tell people that, I'd sound, you know, like an idiot. But it is ultimately your brain signals that are kind of relaying the feeling to you that I am being touched now. This condition is called mirror touch synesthesia. Mirror touch synesthesia. Because, you know, synesthesia is when your senses get crossed. And here, their touch system is crossed with their visual system. If people, for example, see means, let's say, touching an ice cube or something like that, they'll say they'll get a sensation in their fingertip of coldness. And Banasi says mere touch isn't just about physical feelings. They seem to contract people's feelingsy feelings. Emotions. So, for example, if you see somebody upset and you feel upset in response to that, um, and it's in this type of empathy that we find that mirror touch synesthetes differ to non-synesthetes. They have higher levels of this. And finally, it's genetic. Runs in families. Amanda's brother had it too. We didn't know what to call it, you know. Um, Did you call it anything? We just called it the thing. (laughs) The thing. So how do you deal with this thing? That woman, her ankles look like they hurt, and my ankles hurt right now because I've watched them. How do you live when just a trip to the grocery store involves getting intimately entangled with everyone you see? You're kind of getting the downs from that guy. Amanda says when she was growing up, sometimes after being out in the world with everyone else's feelings pulsing through her body... She'd come home and just pass out. It's like the sleep would come over me after a couple hours outside. She said it was like the sleep of the dead. The sleep. I call it the sleep. Did your brother have it too? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so when Amanda was very young, she learned this trick, this way of protecting herself from the feelings of the world. What she'd do is scan her classroom past the boy squirming in his chair, the girl picking her scab. And she'd find the one person who was calmer or happier or more peaceful than the rest, and she'd focus exclusively on them. Concentrate on somebody that wasn't bothering me, (laughs) you know. She would concentrate on their movements, their mood, disappear into them. What was one of the kids you'd, like, find refuge in looking at? Okay, this, this this kid, his name was Jesse. He was quiet, and his hair was kind of shaggy. He didn't really have any friends, and i just look at him. She said he had very gentle movements. The way he'd scratch his hair. So she would focus on him. Yeah. And feel calm. Yeah. And as Amanda got older, she continued to use a variation of this strategy in her life to get by. She would find people who had some quality that made her feel good, 
And she would completely disappear into them and their lives, like a human chameleon that took on the color and perspective in life of one person after another. I spent my life losing myself and other people on whims, just gone. She said this started in earnest with a man who was her dance instructor. She loved being around him, so she moved in and lived with him for several years. Their dreams become your dreams, and you kind of forget about yourself. But then she met a man from a very religious family, and she loved the way he walked and the way that he smoked cigarettes. He made her feel safe. Yeah. So she moved with him to his home country. Mm-hmm. I did that for a little while. How long? Uh, not very long. Maybe like a year or so. Then there was the punk rock guy back in the States who actually fell into a coma shortly after they met. So Amanda says she spent months quietly sitting in his hospital room. I was like a chameleon. There were half a dozen other lives as well. And in her late 20s, she'd be hit time to time with this very haunting sensation that there was something profoundly off here. Like when she found herself in a strange bathroom in a strange country. I remember looking in the mirror and I, and I, I was just staring at myself in the mirror um, like, what am I doing here? She remembers thinking, I just have no idea who I am. Is this who I am or is this who I am because of the people around me? Am I taking them on? You know, am, are they be affecting me so badly? It was so overwhelming me, their personalities, their movements, their this and that. Am I myself? In fact, even in our interview, Lulu and I saw a little tiny part of this habit that Amanda has of losing herself in other people. It had been a surprisingly difficult afternoon of Amanda explaining this very chaotic life that she led. So I decided to pause, check in, see how she was doing. Maybe we could institute, like, just, like, a five minutes of truth. Like, what would you, like, how are you doing and what would you like to do? Like, what do you need? (laughs) It's, I'm completely not, I'm just. But Amanda couldn't say what she needed. You're not focused on, you're not focused. Not at all. Oh, so right now you're not focused on yourself at all. I know, are you like, they're journalists, I'm relating Mm -hmm. to them, they need me to keep talking, (laughs) so I'm going to keep talking to make them feel better. Yeah. It wasn't clear to her which feelings were hers. It's just kind of overwhelming. And it's possible that this inability to know which feelings are foreign and which feelings are hers could be due to another abnormality with her brain. Mirror touch tendencies appear to have less gray matter. That's Michael Banasi again. And he and his team saw that people like Amanda have less gray matter. Kind of proxy measure for a number of cells within a brain region. In one very particular spot of the brain. The part of the brain that's involved in distinguishing self from other. Temporoparietal junction. It's like that region was depleted. Suggesting there might be some breakdown in terms of the way the brain is activating when it's trying to distinguish between the self and somebody else. Panacy says it's almost like that boundary between self and other had dissolved. 
And it's actually this blurring between the self and other that might lead to them treating other people's bodies as if it's their own. Is this who I am or is this who I am because of the people around me? Am I taking them on? Which brings us to probably the most difficult part of Amanda's story. The way it seems like her mirror touch might have affected her relationship with her family. I think I, I've left a trail of chaos a lot of the time. A lot of the time. See, in one of her many lives, Amanda was a mother. With the dance instructor, she had three children. And when she disappeared into other people's lives, she disappeared from their lives, too. She used to travel all the time. Only saw her, like, every few summers. These are two of her daughters, now 19 and 18. We were, like, away for her for a long period of time. My dad took us, obviously. She also has a son, and all three seem to have only very vague memories of their mom from when they were little. Because for significant chunks of their childhood, she was just gone. Lived with my mom a little bit when I was younger. Can barely remember it, but... It, it was terrible. Amanda knows now that she let down her children during this period. I had a very uh, distorted version of myself. Um, I really thought that I had been like a really great mom while they were little. And I just wasn't. It wasn't really until her early 30s that she came to see her life as a chameleon as something that was harming her children. She realized it in part because she was just kind of growing up, but also because it was in her 30s that she finally discovered her synesthesia. See, mirror touch isn't Amanda's only synesthesia. She also has the more typical kinds, like she sees numbers as colors and sounds as smells. But growing up, Amanda didn't have a name for any of this. But then one day, a friend called and told her to turn on the television and watch the show called, I think it was Brain Man. Have you seen that documentary? Different parts of our brain are specialized for different tasks. The show is about this very unusual brain condition where the different senses get crossed. Scientists call this weird phenomenon synesthesia. And there was the announcer describing perfectly that part of her synesthetic experience. So this discovery led her to a synesthet listserv, which led her to the discovery of her mirror touch, which, on the one hand, was great, but also prompted a major reevaluation. What she had was a neurological condition. It wasn't going away. So she needed a more radical solution. And that was when Amanda became a recluse. So in the last four years, you've really stopped going yes, out. Yes, I guess I have, for sure, yeah. Mm -hmm. And she's an odd kind of recluse because she's a total people person. I know, I love people. I love people. You love people, but you just can't be around them. Not all the time, no. I've tried. <laughs> I have tried. So she goes out just once a day. She goes to the grocery store. Otherwise, for the last four years... She's mostly been at home with her husband and children for company. She doesn't go to the kids' schools or out with friends. And Amanda is very clear about why she is doing this. I don't want to be affected by people 
so much that my own children don't know who I am. And in certain ways, this strategy has worked. For the last four years, Amanda and her husband have provided a stable middle-class home for their children. Now, how old are you? Four. Four? The family has even expanded. They've had a fourth child, a little girl. Now, who's that? Is that a unicorn? No. Pegasus? <laughs> and her middle daughter says it's clear Amanda does seem to be doing better now. She's a lot more happy now that all of her kids have moved back in. <laughs> Amanda agrees. This helps. Are those my little ponies? <laughs> and without other people to become absorbed into, the chameleon is wearing her own colors in a way. So just describe what we're looking at here. Okay. This one's called He Catches Her. Okay. And... It's because of seeing somebody catch somebody. Up on the walls of Amanda's home, there are a series of paintings. Wild swirls of color, so dense with movement that they almost feel like they're alive. Amanda painted them. A memory of my dad in the pasture with four horses. Painting is one of the activities that Amanda has been doing over the last four years. In her work, she expresses her memories, her moments, herself. Uh, it, it's me. I feel like that part's me, for sure. So it seems like being a recluse is a reasonable solution to the problem that Amanda faces. I mean, for all of us, as we walk through the world, the feelings, thoughts of other people, they affect us subtly leak into us. Mostly, we are not aware of those exchanges. But Amanda neurologically cannot avoid them. So she's hyper aware of how we are entangled with each other. I do believe uh, our thoughts are matter. Our thoughts are actual matter, just like our skin and this couch. And I think our thoughts have a ripple effect. They travel through the air and change her. So for her, the only way to stay intact is to stay inside. But not everybody in the family is comfortable with how she deals with her mirror touch. It's weird. She misses out a lot of stuff. This is her eldest daughter, a beautiful girl with her mother's dark eyes. In fact, she is a lot like her mother, and not just in terms of her looks. Which brings us to the final twist in the story. Lulu, you talk to her. Mm-hmm. So remember how we learned that mirror touch synesthesia is genetic? Well, everybody in the family thinks that the oldest girl is a little synesthesia too. Yeah. Yeah. Amanda says she didn't notice it until her daughter was about 12 years old. One day, her other two kids were sort of play fighting across the room. And my son, like, fake slapped my other one, you know, and my daughter goes, oh, like this. And I turned to her. I'm like, did you feel that? She's like, yeah. I'm like, so you feel the slap across the room on your face? She's like, duh. But Amanda says her daughter denies she has the condition. She thinks it's something disabling like that. I think she's scared of it. And when I asked her, you know, do you think you have mirror touch synesthesia? I don't like to think I do. Like if you go into a party... 
do you feel aware of what most people are feeling in the room? Um, well, that's actually funny. Um, <laughs> I do go to parties like because I'm in high school. I do go there, but I never drink. I've probably gotten drunk three times in my whole life. Um, but when I go to parties, it's like I already feel like I'm drunk because I'm with everybody who is drunk. Really? Yeah. Do you do you truly do you feel like a little buzz? Yeah, like stumbling and not being able to hold myself up, so I'm over like leaning on somebody else. Wow. How do you explain? So how do you explain that to yourself? Like, I don't know. I just get a high off of other people. Do you ever get um, like if you see a little kid spinning around and around? Do you ever oh, get dizzy? Do you want to throw up like for them? <laughs> really? Yeah, for them. <laughs> Is it hard to watch other people eat? Oh, I hate it. Like icky, nasty, squishy feeling in your mouth. <laughs> and then she told me about the hives. Like you may see my mom like scratching her neck a lot because she gets really nervous and she has these little hives and I get them too because I see her doing it. See, I've got... Bar- I can barely see. Yeah, it's because I, I always cover them up with makeup because I get it too. Really? Yeah. So I had to ask again. Do you think you have mirror touch synesthesia? Um, possibly... But I don't want to end up like her. Because, I mean, she's, I don't want to be rude, but it's like wasted talent. She knows so many languages, and she's an artist, and she has so much potential and talent, and she doesn't do anything. Amanda's paintings, those bright and swirling canvases, hang all over the walls of her daughter's room. Are you the one that puts all her paintings up? Mm Mm-hmm. She doesn't like to show them. Do you like them? Yeah. What do you like about them? Because it's her. It's her. Her emotions. Are you worried? Like, are you worried that that's, that you're the same way? Kind of. But she does everything she can to be different. As overstimulating as the world can be, she's constantly going out with friends. I'm always trying to get out. I don't like the, I don't like how quiet it is here. It sucks. Mm. Nobody talks here. I guess it's because we feel each other all the time. And suddenly, there were tears in her eyes. What is that? What is that about? We don't talk. <laughs> And I began to wonder if maybe this is the danger of empathy. When you think you know what someone else is feeling, when you're pretty sure you've got a handle on it, you don't bother to ask. We never talk, and it isn't right, doesn't feel right. She doesn't ask what's up. You wish she would just ask what's going on. But I would also hate it if she did. That's the contradiction here. <laughs> so how can she win? How could she, how could she, what would you want? I don't know, maybe get out for once like a normal parent. She probably won't even show up to my graduation. Sure, that's fine, but I feel absent when she's absent. Do you think she has any idea like how much it, you care? 
Yeah, she probably does. If she really does have synesthesia, you know, she'd know. (laughs) Yeah, she has a lot of resentments. She's disappointed. Right before we left town, we sat with Amanda in her car and talked to her about her eldest daughter and her other kids. Amanda knew it was hard for them, particularly her oldest, that she didn't go to the daily events of life, the dance concerts, the soccer games. But she felt it just worked better when she held herself back. In fact, she said she now even holds herself emotionally apart from her children, keeps them at a distance. Why are you disconnected? Why? Well, it's, it's, you, uh, it's just how are you going to survive if we're all like these emotional, uh, if we're crying all the time and, and we're sad all the time or we're showing the other person who's sad and we're affecting the other person and we're, you know. So even though she knows her distance hurts them? She thinks it's the thing that's finally allowed her to be there with them. Yeah. No, it sounds harsh. Um, but I have a job to do, and it's just to, you know, I have a job to do. I'm supposed to be their mother. I'm not supposed to be them. I'm not supposed to be them. A couple of weeks after we left town... We got this video via email. It was a recording of her daughter's graduation ceremony. And amid the crowd of feelings of kids nervous about the rest of their lives and parents choked up at letting their kids go and grandparents with aching backs and babies wailing about whatever it is that babies wail about, in the middle of that great wash of emotion that flows from and covers us all, stood Amanda, a mother there to watch her daughter cross the stage. Invisibilia will return in a moment. This message comes from Apple Card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase. That's 3% on products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This message comes from NPR sponsor Stamps.com. Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting, no long-term commitments or contracts. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. This is Invisibilia. I'm Elise Spiegel. And I'm Lulu Miller. And today we are looking at entanglement, the ways which we are all invisibly connected with one another. Yep. And we just heard this story about a woman who can feel, literally physically feel, what other people are feeling. And as sort of nutty and strange as that sounds, Mm -hmm. this is happening to all of us. The gentleman in the elevator now is a candid star. 
Which brings me to a series of famous old clips from the TV show Candid Camera, hosted by Alan Funt. Here's the candid subject. Okay, so we see a poor, unsuspecting man walk into an elevator that has been secretly rigged up with cameras. And, uh, and he stands there, waiting for the door to close, when all of a sudden... Here comes the candid camera staff. Two people walk in. The man with the white shirt, the lady with the trench coat. And weirdly, they face the wrong direction. They face toward the back wall of the elevator. <laughs> the poor little guy is very confused. <laughs> Does the door open the other way? To help us make sense of what's about to yes, happen to this guy, we brought in two psychological researchers from the University of Hawaii, <laughs> Elaine Hatfield and her husband-slash-colleague, Dick Rapson. Aloha. Aloha. So anyway, back to this guy in the elevator. He keeps on facing in the right direction, despite the two weirdos next to him. And he looks at both of them facing the wrong way, looking very puzzled. He looks at his watch. But when a third person comes in and faces the back wall, the poor little guy can't take it anymore. Now he turns immediately to the back wall. (laughs) (laughs) And the dance is on. Now they all turn forward. He turns forward like all the others are doing. (laughs) Candid camera observed this phenomenon again and again. An unsuspecting victim would walk into that elevator and end up imitating whatever the people around him were doing. He has a hat on. Uh, and the others take off their hats, so he takes his hat off as well. Now, the first guy's initial slow turn to the wall is what Dick and Elaine call conformity. You don't want to look like a fool when you slowly and consciously decide to follow the group. That's right. But sometimes the victim begins following what the people do so quickly that it goes by another name. Contagion. Contagion. Now the others are turning around, and he turns around right with him. That's an example of contagion. When the imitation is so fast, it looks... Like it was choreographed. The others are putting their hats back on, and he puts his hat back on. <laughs> and you, listening to my voice, do this too. Whether you want to or not, all day long you are engaged in a kind of synchronized dance with the people you come into contact with. When we watch other people... For some reason, we're wired up to get in sync with them on so many things that it kind of boggles your mind. Some are more obvious, how you imitate people's postures and speaking patterns, but others are quiet. Like how if you're talking to a friend, over time you may begin to blink as one. Or if you watch someone stutter, the tiny muscles on your mouth will start to twitch and they calculate that it's so fast that you couldn't possibly do it consciously. Really? It's got to be going through the brain stem. So if you could put people in the same room, you'll find that their breathing starts to mimic one another as well. That's Michael Banasi, the neuroscientist from our last story. Really? Like a, a, around a conference, group conference table, we'll all start breathing as one? <laughs> yeah. It's so wired in and in the primitive parts of the brain that animals do it. Monkeys, dogs, even little birds imitate one another. It just happens. It just runs off like breathing. And it's not just each other's physical movements we take on, but emotions too. And this is Dick and Elaine's real specialty, emotional contagion. I'll tell you how we first started to come across the notion of contagion. Uh, We were therapists for a while, for about 15 years, and we remember a client who came in 
who was very animated. She was talking very quickly and uh, energetically. Uh, but I found I started to yawn. And Elaine started to yawn. Hmm. And I said, did we sleep last night? Did you sleep last night? Are you tired? And she, Elaine said, no. And I wasn't tired at all. Uh, so why were we yawning? And what we think was going on is that we were picking up underneath her cascade of words, depression. Hmm. That was their idea, that the depression was somehow being telegraphed to them non-verbally. So they looked into it and found out that, indeed, emotions leak out a person's face in these very measurable, consistent ways called micro-expressions. Split-second expressions of fear. Grief. Shame. Joy. Sadness. What Dick and Elaine then added to the equation after years of research is that one way we might contract these emotions is through that same old dance. Because our faces, unbeknownst to us, actually imitate the tiny micro-expressions we see on other people, our eyebrows bound in synchrony with someone else's surprise, or droop with someone else's sadness. The strange result is that the corresponding emotion is produced inside us. That's right. Because, as has now been well documented, one of the ways that emotions are produced is from the outside in. I do believe uh, our thoughts are matter. Which reminded us of that thing that Amanda, the clinically empathetic woman from the last segment, said. Our thoughts are actual matter, just like our skin and this couch. And I think our thoughts have a ripple effect. In a sense, she's right. We get real pale little reflections of what others are thinking and feeling. And for Dick and Elaine, the result of this realization of learning about hundreds of experiments in which we so readily contract each other's emotions and thoughts and breath, is that even though you walk around thinking of yourself as an individual... That we're each individual entities uh, who live in our own universe and control our own universe. I think that's uh, a delusion. Would you agree with that, Elaine? Yes, I would. We're going to slip in to being like the company we keep. It's like without quite being aware of it, we are all one organism. A heaving, swirling organism contracting the feelings and thoughts of the people around us. Which I'm pretty sure is some philosopher's definition of bliss or nirvana, but when Dick and Elaine realized this, They felt like their jobs as therapists got a lot harder. You give up the hope that you can change everything. We are so permeable, they came to believe, that if a patient came to them asking how to deal with visits home to particularly toxic environments, families that are extremely angry or alcoholic or depressed, they tell them, Don't stay with them. Seriously? Yeah, I think that if you're, say, going home for Christmas, you vow, this time I am really going to behave well. I'm not going to say mean things, etc. I'm going to be so good, I'm just going to listen to them talk for four days. 
ha, 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 that is not going to happen. What's going to happen is after two hours, you're going to do something awful because you can't help it. And then the rest of the year, you're going to be ashamed of yourself and sorry. So we'd say the get the hotel thing. At first, they'd say, I couldn't do that. It would break my mother's heart. She would never understand. And the answer is, is she going to understand when you scream at her after two hours and behave in an awful way? Eventually, their mother would get used to it, they'd get used to it, and the family would go well. In other words, if you are dreaming of a white Christmas where everything is merry and bright, then, according to Dick and Elaine, after two hours' time, Run. 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 Elise Spiegel does not support or condone the recommendation of avoiding family members during the holidays. Remember, they gave you life and even tolerated that unfortunate phase in high school when you thought it was a good idea to wear your sweatshirt as pants. The least you can do is pretend to enjoy your mother's food and watch unspeakably bad television with your father. After all, they did provide food and shelter, you heartless, ungrateful wretch. Okay. Got that on my system. And now for something completely different. It was recently suggested to us that most people can do a pretty good impersonation of that person that we all began life entangled with, our mom. You know, like, and don't really even think about it. I don't, I don't can you do one mm. of your mom? Mm. I mean, I have one, which is just like her <sighs> bull****. Like, that's, that's like, the one impersonation, because she just, she smokes a lot and says bull <laughs> a lot. That's what I got. Elise and I were talking to the comedian Maria Bamford. Okay, so how about Lulu? Do you got one? Yeah, I guess the main one is girls. Girls. <laughs> tell about the time. Tell. Tell. It's a command for us to tell a story. She's the MC, And it's a special. <laughs> tell. Girls, tell. And we were talking to Maria about mom impersonations because imitating her mom is a big part of her professional life. My mom, I'll tell you a little about myself. My mom um, told me before I went to my first girl-boy party in the eighth grade. She said, okay, remember what we talked about? Gonorrhea, syphilis, herpes, one, two. Watch the cold sores. Date rape is a lot more common than people think. You look so gorgeous. You were conceived in Groton, Connecticut, and one night in a campsite. I am not saying you weren't planned. I'm just saying Bamfords get pregnant like falling off logs. Oh, Jenny's mom's here to pick you up. Well, have a good time. Bits like this are standard for Maria. Sometimes they're just funny because the version of her mom that she plays is so charmingly, obliviously upbeat about the horrors of the world that it's actually endearing. Oh, sweetie, I have a joke for you. A friend of mine, coincidentally, she was actually in foster care. She is so funny. She was airlifted out of the Sudan in the late 90s because she had been bearmed and belegged by the Janjaweed, the horseback militia. She's just a hoot. She'd love to do stand-up, but she can't. But sometimes the imitations feel like they're about elements in their relationship that have a darker side. Sweetie, are you taking a shower? Can I just get in there real quick and just show you something? Oh, I didn't know you were naked. Oh, sweetie. Listen, if you want to get breast implants, we will support you. Not financially, but, but emotionally. So we were curious about this, about what happens 
when you mess in a very public way with an entanglement that's already pretty complicated, the emotional entanglement between mother and daughter. You know, how does it feel to imitate and how does it feel to be imitated and how does the imitation affect the original entanglement? Yeah. So we decided to ask them. Will you will you tell me what you had for breakfast? Oh, I had oatmeal. I had bran buds. Greek yogurt. Rice milk. Blueberries. An older banana that I probably didn't have to eat, but it felt necessary. On two different days in two different states, with the blessing of both of them, we spoke to Maria and her mom, whose name is Marilyn Bamford. We started with Maria, who said her mom imitations were actually some of the very first bits of comedy that she ever did when she was 18 or 19 and doing stand-up in Minnesota. And in the beginning, she did it, she says, really to get a kind of distance or control over their relationship. For me, it was a time in life of like uh, detaching from my family or detaching from you know, what, you know, what I think they want me to be, you know, which I'm sure they, they just want me to be happy. Uh, but at that point in my life, I was like, yeah, you know, like, guess what my mom just said. And <laughs> so it was more sort of like this way I could express frustration. Like uh, my mom, uh, I remember she did or what I heard her say. Of course, she may have a different feeling of what she said at the time, but she said, uh, if you don't wear makeup... Honey, when you don't wear makeup, you look mentally ill. (laughs) So now when I go home, I'm certain to wear thick green eyeshadow and a line of lipstick around my lips, huh? Baby look pretty now, mommy. Oh, it feels like she's got me down perfectly in terms of voice, cadence, vocabulary, pretty much... And what you know, about the things that you say? I mean, the well, con- quite a bit of that is not exactly what I say. The one I think about was the one where she has me saying, "When you don't wear lipstick, you look mentally ill." Yeah. And she and I have gone back and forth about that because I, I know I didn't say it that way. I said, "You look depressed." I mean, that's my memory of yeah. it. On the other hand. She remembers what she remembers. But still, Marilyn doesn't seem bothered by the impersonations, even when she feels like Maria misrepresents her. She sees them instead as helpful. I mean, I've recognized that when she talks about certain things in her comedy, that those are issues. For her, that she's projecting out some issue that she's interested in. And so that when I say something like, oh, I don't think I said that, and then we have a discussion about it, it's, it is helpful in the end, you know, to have that kind of discussion. And, um, but I know there are probably some times where I have chosen not to say anything about it because I'm not sure I want to discuss it or have the energy to discuss it. You know, I think the real reason you were down is because you're 36. Everything you've ever achieved is really in the past now. Probably never really reach those heights again. I don't want to talk about it. You look 36. And, you know, that's, that's hard. Do you learn anything about yourself from watching her imitation of you? 
Yes. <laughs> I, I kind of remind myself of my mother. My mother was a believer that you put your lipstick on and you powdered your nose. If she went out and she put, instead of wearing a house dress, she would wear something nicer. And I think we all, or many people that I know, don't particularly want to be like their mothers. Uh, not because they don't love their mothers, it's because they just don't want to be like their mothers. They want to be themselves. And I think I see that there in myself, and I say, oh, no, <laughs> I don't want to be that way. But what can you do? And speaking of the inevitable gravity of becoming your mother, a funny thing actually happened to Maria as she impersonated her mom more and more. Though she started out doing it to detach herself from Marilyn, it ended up just bringing her closer. Yeah, like it cheers me up to think about what she would say about things. Like, um, I like the idea that she has a certain point of view on life and things are certain. Or, or, or if I, if she's not around, I can make her be around. You know, of what would she say in this this situation? In terms of like. I, I would like to be more like her as I get older. Like, I'm hoping that my impersonation just bleeds into I'm her. <laughs> like, as I get older. Are you, re- are you really hoping that? I kind of, I do kind of think about that. Like, if I was, you know, rather than being, you know, I could just be the full-on Marilyn Bamford because um, she's a very likable person you know she's always bright-eyed and bushy-tailed it's like oh honey we're going we're in turkey and i wanted to call you because the hotel next door is on fire and your (laughs) father is vining it i don't know what the (laughs) thing is but listen we're fine they said the imam says we have to leave this hotel which is just a real pain in the neck but we are going to have dinner tonight in the town square and everybody's out because the And Marilyn Benford says that, in her own way, she too has experienced an unanticipated benefit of her daughter's impressions of her. I think that many women my age who are, you know, catching up with 70, um, you know, feel kind of invisible. So therefore, when you uh, have your daughter doing these really wonderful and gifted impressions of you. It makes you kind of immortal in some way. And that's kind of a lovely thing to happen at at this age because, um, you know, you're more seen. Maria had actually never heard this. And when we told her, she made three noises. Oh, oh, that's really well yeah because my mom is such a delight and she's lots of fun and yeah no and I've experienced that uh, three noises uh, for me anyway Lulu represent the paradox of entanglement with your parents first you feel that involuntary rush of connection but then something else creeps up a desire to be separate. Oh. And finally, that slight discomfort of knowing that life is a nauseating journey of being forever tugged between these two states. Wah. 
Okay, it is just because he is intimidated by your beauty because you are the most beautiful girl in the whole world. And if you would stop doing impersonations of me, maybe other people could see that. Dancing time? Yeah. Invisibilia is me, Elise Spiegel. And me, Lulu Miller. Our senior editor is the great Anne Gudenkoff, with help from Brent Bachman, Brendan Baker, Andy Huther, Eric Newsom, Matt Martinez, Portia Robertson-Migas, and Madalika Sika. Special thanks to Paul Drew Smith for his help with the music in this episode. And now, for our moment of nonsense. All touch, even the touch you feel like, um... <laughs> a little Ow. pinch down on Ow. your arm. Sorry. <laughs> that feeling. Was it that bad? I think I'm bleeding. Authenticity. Ow. Join us next week for more. How does AI even work? Where does creativity come from? What's the secret to living longer? TED Radio Hour explores the biggest questions with some of the world's greatest thinkers. They will surprise, challenge, and even change you. Listen to NPR's TED Radio Hour wherever you get your podcasts. The world of podcasts can feel overwhelming. We'll let you in on the easiest way to find your next favorite show. Head to npr.org slash podcast. From politics to pop culture to music and everything in between, you'll find a selection of shows that'll make you a super fan in no time. 